We are going to be in Acts chapter 14 this morning. If any of you are familiar with The Hobbit, okay, good, because I like The Hobbit as well. I, I realized this morning that my title is eerily similar. If you remember, The Hobbit is called There and Back Again, A Hobbit's Tale. And that's somewhat similar to our passage today with Paul and Barnabas, here, there, and back again. An apostle's tale, we could say. So, Acts 14, I'm excited to get in this passage. We're going to be covering verses 1 through 23. And this is a general outline of, uh, of our passage, but we're going to draw some points out of these. Um, these aren't our main points, this is just kind of how it's broken down. First, we're going to look at Paul and Barnabas as they preach to the Jews and Gentiles in Iconium. This is the uh, short section, verses 1 through 7, that Luke records for us, but there's a lot of stuff in there we can consider. They move from there to, uh, to Lystra and some of the surrounding towns. That will be verses 8 through 18, a greater majority, but there's, there's still some good stuff in that, in that passage. Then last of all, we're going to look at confirming and establishing the disciples in verses 19 through 23. Then we're going to ask, ask the question and answer, why the urgency of leaders? And for that, we're going to uh, study the entire book of Galatians. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you'll see what I mean that when, when we get there, okay? Let's read Acts 14, 1 through 7, and then we'll move forward. Luke writes this, Now at Iconium... They had entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. I want to bring us up to speed since I've been out of the pulpit for a couple of weeks. We are still in the first missionary journey of Paul. Um, previously, they went to the island of Cyprus, which was Barnabas' hometown. They evangelized there. From the island of Cyprus, they sailed across the sea there to uh, the southern districts of, of Asia Minor. Um, and the major city that Luke recorded for us was Pisidian Antioch. This is a different Antioch from the Antioch in Syria, which they left from. Uh, Pisidian Antioch was about uh, a major city. It was a cultural hub had a large Jewish synagogue there, and, and it was there that they uh, were persecuted by the Jews and run out of town. We pick it up in verse 1 of ba uh, Barnabas and Paul coming to Iconium. Iconium, is, as you see there on your slide, was about 80 miles southeast of Pisidian Antioch. Iconium also was a cultural melting pot, as many of these Roman provinces were. There's many native Phrygians, there's Greeks and Jews, and there were uh, many Roman colonists. Roman colonists would consist of ex-Roman uh, soldiers who would go settle in places as part of their um, retirement. And as Paul's custom, um, because there's a large gathering of Jews, they had a synagogue in Iconium. So he goes to the synagogue first. And partly because if he were to go to the Gentiles or Greeks first, 
uh, the Jews wouldn't allow him into the synagogue to preach. So he, he went to the synagogue first and he preaches the gospel to them there. Um, it's an interesting, there's an interesting historical text as well, um, written by um, a man named Ovid, um, who at first claimed, this is an interesting story, uh, claimed that this was a, a book by the apostles themselves. It was a book called the Acts of Paul. And originally when the early church fathers were working to make the canon of scripture, they included this letter, the Acts of Paul, in the canon uh, because it seemed so authoritative and accurate. Ovid later admitted, he was an elder at a church, he, he admitted that he himself wrote it. It wasn't written by the Apostle Paul. Nonetheless, there's a lot of historical information there. There's a lot of good stuff, even though it ultimately didn't make the canon of scripture. It includes the only description of what the Apostle Paul looked like for us. Um, Ovid communicates that there's a man named Onesiphorus, which again is historical weight. If you've read 2 Timothy, for instance, uh, Paul laments what I believe is Onesiphorus' martyrdom in Rome in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. Um, but Onesiphorus was a man who later on in Paul's life continually ministered to Paul. Well, Onesiphorus says this, it's communicated by the scholar F.F. F. Bruce. He describes the letter saying this way, Onesiphorus sets out to meet Paul, uh, who is on his way into the city of Iconium. And the description says this, he saw Paul approaching a man as a man who was small in stature, small in size, with meeting or joining eyebrows. He had a rather large crooked nose. He was bald-headed, bow-legged, but he was strong in his build. He describes him as being full of grace because at times he looked like a man and then at times he had the face of an angel. Interesting description. Scholars uh, almost universally give a lot of weight to this description. There's, there's not really embellishment in it. Um, and it was dated all the way back to 150 AD. Pretty, uh, Paul was or, uh, beheaded in 66 AD. Some more information about Iconium. As Paul preaches there, this account records for us that many of the Jews disbelieved what Paul was saying. The word there in verse 2, if you see it, but the unbelieving Jews or the disbelieving Jews. Some of your Bibles may have translated that word as disobedient Jews. That's actually the word, disobedient we don't usually think of disobedience in connection with unbelief, but it is. If you go over to Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31, for instance, when Paul's preaching to uh, the Greeks at Athens, he actually says that it was a command of God that all people everywhere turn and believe in him. Because the times of ignorance and times past he's overlooked, but now he's commanding people to believe in the gospel. And so unbelief is, is, uh, uh, follows from disobedience. It's a disobedient heart. There's many scriptures, in fact, that back this up. Chapter 19 of Acts, verses 8 through 10, John 3, 36, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, where in the end times, Paul actually says, uh, those people who refuse to believe in the truth, so as to be saved, God gave them over to a deluding spirit to be deceived. So the first thing that, that Luke is pointing out here is, is something we've seen with the Jews in particular. That some of the Jews received the gospel as Paul preached it. 
But many disbelieved and became disobedient to the gospel. Nonetheless, um, Paul remained preaching for a while. Okay? Um, I, I do want to say this. I, I said this in my notes. I think it's important. Um, having heard the gospel is, and not responding in faith is one of the most dangerous places a person can place their soul. I've said this before, to be able to sit in a church week in and week out without actually moving in faith is the most dangerous place you can put yourself. To remain friendly, quote-unquote, as many of us consider ourselves, well, I'm not unfriendly to the gospel. No, I don't obey it, but I, I'm not opposed to it. We try and put ourselves in this neutral platform. We've got to see in Scripture as people who both share the gospel with others, and maybe as one who is in that place themselves, it is a dangerous place to let people remain neutral. Press for decision. Right? The Old Testament says, Woe to the multitudes who are in that valley of decision. Today is the day of salvation, the scripture says. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. God is in the world, calling to the world through the church to come to him. Come out and be clean, be separate. And that's the gospel cry. But to remain neutral is to remain disobedient. And that's what, what Luke is pointing out um, for us here. But also, the text says that those unbelieving Jews, those disobedient Jews, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the rulers. Literally, the Jews stirred up the minds and embittered the Gentiles toward Paul. Your Bibles may translate uh, the word poison there as embittered. That's the idea, embittering them. This is an interesting concept as far as persecution and the strategy of Satan. We're going to consider it in a little bit, so I won't get there. But it's not necessarily outward persecution yet. There's the masses. The entire city is listening to Paul and Barnabas. So much so that the text actually says the entire city was divided. Some sided with the apostles, some with the Jews. And those who uh, were somewhat in the middle trying to figure it out, the Jews were in the crowd poisoning the hearts and minds of the listeners against Paul and Barnabas. This is so telling to me as a pastor because I understand... That what goes on in church and what goes on in life is not just carnal interactions. There's spiritual workings going on that we can't always see. And as we're going to see in a minute, even as I preach now, seeds are being plucked out of people. There's cares of this life choking it out. There's worry, anxiety choking it out. Let alone people who openly oppose the gospel. These Jews are showing their disobedience by actually working to undermine Paul and Barnabas. How scary a place that is for people who openly oppose the truth, who openly oppose it. But I love what, what Luke says in following. So the Jew, unbelieving Jews are stirring up the Gentiles and poisoning their minds against the brothers. Some of your Bibles may say, therefore, in verse 3, the ESV translates, translates it this way, so they, Paul and Barnabas, remained for a long time. I love that. They were aware of what the Jews were doing in the crowd. They knew that they were being actively opposed as they preached. 
that, that the Jews were trying to turn the hearts and minds of the listeners against them. And it was because they knew that, that they stayed even longer. It didn't, shy, it didn't cause Paul and Barnabas to shy away. It didn't cause them uh, to lose heart. In fact, it caused them to work harder for the truth. They understood the principle, we will be opposed every place we go. That doesn't bother me. But when I see it happening, I'm going to work harder on your behalf. That the truth might be more fundamentally laid in your hearts and minds so that you might be established in the faith. Paul is always concerned about establishing the, the people he preaches to in the truth. He says to the Galatians, uh, which is all these uh, towns we're going to look at today. This was the Galatian province. He says, I labor as one who's in, in birth pains until Christ is formed in you. That's what a pastor should do. That's what a shepherd should do. That's what my concern for you as a church should be, is laboring on your behalf until Christ is formed in you, until you are on solid foundation. When there's active opposition, there's not persecution yet, but there's active opposition, it caused Paul and Barnabas to stay longer. And what's awesome, in verse 3, because they knew they were being opposed, they stayed for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, which we're going to talk about later. And it was the Lord working with them. It says this, The Lord bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. I love this. When people are bold in the Lord, and they step out, they know they're being opposed, but they, it doesn't frighten them doesn't cause them to shrink back from the work that needs to be done. You know what the Lord's doing also for you? He's working for you, in you, through you. It was the Lord with them confirming the word of His grace. He's doing it through miracles. Through many signs and wonders being done by their hands. Verse 4 though, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. So an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. When they learned of it, they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and then to the surrounding country. In verse 7 there, they continued to preach the gospel. Literally, that word there, preach the gospel, is one word in the Greek. It's, uh, it, it's the word evangelize. They, be, they continued to evangelize as they fled. Okay? So that was Iconium. It, it, Paul and Barnabas, we don't know how long they stayed. They stayed for a long time, the scripture says, to confirm the word in those people. And because they'd spent a significant amount of time there, when they found out about the uh, attempted stoning, they left. Now the exact opposite is going to happen in our next account, which is interesting. They barely get to Lystra, we're going to see. He is actually stoned and he goes back in. Because the work's not done yet. What a man, okay? So let's, let's move on. And look at Lystra, verse 8 through 20. And then we'll consider both towns and, and draw some applications out for us. Verse 8, Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. I'll stop there. I'm not going to say much. I find that statement so interesting, I don't really understand it, just to be honest. As Paul's preaching the gospel, there's a man, a crippled man, who's never walked in his life, crippled from birth. And the text says that Paul saw of that man, he had faith to be made well. 
There's some visible manifestation that Paul understood this man has faith to be made well. I don't really understand that. But Paul saw it, he discerned it, and he just looks at the man and says, stand up. <laughs> the man stands up. It's quite a contrast, by the way. Uh, for instance, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the end of the chapter, Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you who are wise, not many noble. Right? Here, they're in Lystra. All these well-educated uh, religious people are listening. And not many believe, but the crippled man who is of lowly nature and stature, he believes, and he gets the prize. Quite the contrast there. Let's keep reading, and then I'll give you some more background on Lystra. Verse 11, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, In Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So little information about Lystra's um, Lyconia, Lystra, Derby, and all those surrounding regions that, that Luke mentions were all part of the Roman province of Galatia. So when you read the book of Galatians, that's not a town. It's a province composed of many towns. So when Paul wrote that letter to the Galatians, he's referring to all these towns. Okay? It had a very small or no Jewish population in Lystra. There, there was more likely a little bit of Jews there, but there was no synagogue. And so Paul goes straight to the Greeks to preach, okay? And we read there that uh, when they saw the miracle, they, they called Barnabas, Zeus, and, and Paul Hermes. That goes back in their history. Um, the story of Zeus and Hermes at one time apparently visited that town and sought people to sacrifice to them, and they didn't see fit to sacrifice to Zeus and Hermes except one uh, couple. So all the other townspeople drowned, and that couple became the priest and priestess of, of Zeus and Hermes. In fact, the, the temple of Zeus was dedicated in the town of Lystra because uh, those people honored Zeus there. Zeus was the leading god of the Greeks. Hermes was his messenger, his mouthpiece. When Zeus would declare something according to Greek mythology, it was Hermes who'd come down to the people and tell the people Zeus's will. So they show obvious signs of being religiously zealous, but very little influence of any Hebrew religion in there, okay? Very heavy influence of Greek. And what's interesting is that they had been evangelized with the gospel. Paul and Barnabas show up and they begin evangelizing, preaching the gospel to them. And the people are hearing the gospel. Then they witness the power of God and the healing of the crippled man. Yet, we read in verse 11, they interpreted what they saw in the healing through their own cultural religious heritage, ignoring what they just heard in the gospel. 
These points highlight some truth to me that we often see in Scripture. One, and many today who are unbelievers argue that if God were to somehow show them a sign, do some miracle for them, then they believe. Have you ever heard that? Pretty common today, right? In our materialistic worldview, it's a pretty common argument. People at Lystra heard the gospel, they did see a sign, and the exact opposite happened. They didn't believe. Scripture actually testifies over and over that if you see a sign, it doesn't mean you'll come to faith in the Lord at all. Go real quick with me to Luke chapter 16. Keep your finger there in Acts. Luke 16, very well-known passage of Scripture, but it highlights this point perfectly. Remember the parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man dies and goes down to hell. And in his torment, he calls out to Father Abraham, Hey, give me some water. Abraham refuses. He says, Well, at least go tell my brothers. Don't come here. This is bad. Okay? That's paraphrased, of course. Verse 25, let's pick it up in Luke 16, 25. Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I begged, Father... To send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. And we, that response tells us why this man was in hell, right? No, the word's not good enough. <laughs> no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, and that idea is here with faith, right? Here so as to believe. Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I'll say this as clearly as I can. When you share the gospel with people and they insist on a sign, they have no faith to believe. And even if a sign were granted, they wouldn't believe. That speaks unmistakably to the condition of our human nature. We are so spoiled and dark and fallen, even seeing someone rise from the dead would not move us to a place of faith. It is a foolish thing to seek after signs to establish faith. It is completely backwards according to the Scripture. The Scripture says, no, listen to the Word and believe it. That's where the power of God resides. This town heard the gospel. They saw the healing. They had both. And they still didn't believe. It's such an important point. You can witness something truly miraculous and yet miss the bigger picture. What they lacked, in other words, according to verse 15 in Acts, back in Acts 14, they lacked repentance. They lacked faith. They interpreted what they saw through their own vain idols, Paul said. They weren't willing, in other words, to let go of these idols that they were clinging to. Zeus and Hermes have not now all of a sudden been incarnated and are amongst us. It's not Zeus and Hermes. We're not gods, Paul and Barnabas are saying. You missed the gospel. 
We preach to you Jesus Christ as Lord, Paul would tell the Corinthian church, not we ourselves. We are not Lord. We are men. We're bondservants of the Lord. That's what they tell Lystra. Men, why are you doing these things? Verse 15. We also are men of like nature with you. So the people have been listening in vain. I want to go... Uh, we, we read... Um, go to 2 Corinthians with me. We, we had read this during our worship set. It fit well with our songs and it fit well in my notes. So I wanted to use the 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Anna read for us verse 17 to the end of the chapter. But before what precedes those verses we read during the song set. Very telling passage of scripture. What, what's going on in people who can hear the gospel. Who can even perhaps see a miracle and yet not come to faith. What's going on? Why do they not get it? Paul tells us here in 2 Corinthians 3 beginning in verse 12. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What Paul's referring to there is when Moses came off the mountain from receiving the law and being in the presence of God, he shone with God's glory. And it was too great for the people to look upon, if you remember. So they asked him, cover up, we can't look at you. So Moses put a veil over his face and it hid the glory. And Paul's applying that to the hearts of people now. There's a veil over us. So we can't see. It's a spiritual covering. He goes on though. Verse 14. Their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the old covenant. That same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes to this day whenever Moses is read. A veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. I'm sure for your own testimony, when you came to faith in the Lord, you can look back on your pre-Christ days and your after-Christ conversion. And you can say, wow, I understood nothing back then. I was blind, and now I see. Every person who's been born again, that's part of their testimony. I was ignorant, and now I get it. That's because the veil's been removed now. You've come in faith. It's only in Christ that you can see and understand. Turn to the very next chapter in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul picks up on this imagery. It's not just the Jews that a veil lies over. It's everyone. Verse four, or chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God. We do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cutting or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I love that statement. You know what Paul's saying there? He says, look, when I leave your presence, I want you to remember me. <laughs> the words I say, I want them to sting in your conscience. That you would not be able to rest until you deal with it. That's what Paul's saying. I commend myself to your conscience. But then he says this in verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, picking up on that same theme... Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's what happened at Lystra. They heard the gospel. They saw the healing. And they were blind to the truth. It's a testimony 
they didn't believe. The God of this world was blinded them. This is what's going on here, and it goes on with people week in and week out. You can be talking with coworkers, with family members, and get so frustrated. Why don't you understand this? Don't get frustrated at them. Pray for them, and pray that the veil's removed. That's what's going on. They are spiritually blinded right now. Through the hardness of their heart, their unbelief. Pray that God would overcome that. That the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ would shine in their hearts. And they'd see, believe the word. So the people back in Acts chapter 14, they saw the miracle and they get very excited. They try to offer sacrifice thinking Paul and Barnabas or Zeus and Hermes come back to revisit them. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul they called Hermes. It's an interesting thing. Zeus is the priority god. So Barnabas apparently had some kind of presence about him that was more authoritative and some ways than Paul. Well, we read the description of Paul, right? Bodily, he probably wasn't very impressive. But Paul was the chief speaker. And that's why they called him Hermes. So they try to make sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas as gods. Verses 11 through 15 and 18. And the, then the people turn against Paul and Barnabas. Through the persuasion of the Jews. Look in verse 19 with me. But Jews came from Antioch. And Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now notice, where did these Jews come from? Iconium and Antioch. They're, they're tracing Paul and Barnabas' route. Everywhere Paul and Barnabas go, they're coming behind him and trying to undermine the work. They meet him in Lystra, and turn the crowd against him. It's so interesting, this dynamic here. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this. He called a mob a society of bodies voluntarily bereaving themselves of reason. The, the great old pastor Warden Wiersbe said, Paul was a god to be worshipped. The next minute he was a criminal to be slain. At this point, these people have heard the truth on at least three fronts. They heard the gospel. They saw the gospel and power of God displayed in the healing of the crippled man. And Paul appeals to general revelation to nature to try and get them to stop. Verse 16, in past generations he's allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself, verse 17, without witness. He did good to people by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Three witnesses these people have received and they rejected it. At this point, they become a mob. They voluntarily set aside reason. They can't be reasonable. Can't talk to people like this. You've said what you can say, and now they want to stone you. Where five minutes ago, they wanted to worship you as Hermes. People are like this today. And it's a sad testimony. Most of you probably don't get to experience this week in and week out and dealing with people, but as a pastor I do. You see the fickleness and unfaithfulness of people. And it's heartbreaking. You endure with people and you tell them the truth and you persevere and you persevere and all of a sudden, boom. They turn. There is so much insecurity in people who are not grounded by faith. There's a conception of faith in the world today that thinks faith is actually the 
um, the weakest place to be. They, they viewed it as a crutch. Remember the governor of uh, Minnesota or whoever, Jesse Body Ventura, how he called faith a crutch. He didn't need a crutch. You're leaning on something. Paul said it this way. He said, people are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They'll believe one thing. Someone comes in in a persuasive way, convinces of them this, so they go there. Now they're here. Now they're there. Now they're here. Faith grounds you in reality and it grounds you in truth. Here's why. People who live by reason alone seek answers to the immediate questions. But they have no answers for the ultimate questions. People who live by faith have answers to the ultimate questions, even if they don't have answers to the immediate ones. But they're rooted and grounded in what's ultimate. They've been answered and settled for us. It's fascinating. It's sad, but it's a fascinating thing to consider this mob mentality that we witness at Lystra. What can we learn? What characterized Iconium and Lystra? As I thought about these two towns and these two accounts, two things stood out to me. And they both have to deal with satanic strategy. Number one, competing voices for the gospel. You remember the parable Jesus gave in Matthew 13, verses 18 through 23. The sower is going. He's sowing seed everywhere. And Jesus depicts four different types of ground. Remember that? The first is the rocky ground. And he says that the birds of the air come and snatch it up. He later just says that that's Satan stealing away the seed of the gospel. Doesn't even have time to take root in people's lives. When you preach, the gospel will fall on stony ground and Satan will be there to snatch it away. It's a competing voice for the gospel. He also describes two other strategies, however, or two other uh, voices competing for your listeners. He talks about those who... uh, fall away from the word. Even though they might receive it initially, they fall away from the word because of the fear of persecution, a fear of men. When persecution arises, they fall away. Why? Because they fear men more than they fear God. They love their own life more than they love the Lord. And when persecution threatens, chokes out the seed. Then there's the third characterization Jesus gave of the, the seed being choked out by weeds. And he says that's the cares of this world and the love of money. And that's a broad statement. Cares of this world can be many things. And it's a competing reality for your affection and obedience to the Lord. The love of money is as well. There's only one ground that Jesus said bore fruit to eternal life. But understanding, when you as the sower go out to sow seed, you are competing against a host of things. There are cares of of the world and people's lives you don't know of. It's going on right now as I preach. (laughs) It's going on right now. Trying to distract, pull our attention away from what's ultimate. And I've got to compete against that. I know that. What do I do? I pray. Lord, you know what's going on in all of your hearts. Grab their attention, Lord, that the word may bear fruit in their life. There's also the outright opposition. Satan will be there every step of the way trying to snatch away the seed from you. You've got to be aware of this, right? Paul said to the Corinthian church, we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes, his designs. We're not going to be fooled by him. And I'm going to highlight this point in a minute. 
I love it. I love it. It's interesting to observe. Um, second one there, second satanic strategy, is he'll persecute the messenger. Now I'm, I put that note at the bottom of your slide. Satan works in the listeners to cause them to disbelieve, right? And he works on the speakers to discourage and dissuade. Understand that. Satan's smart. I mean, we've got a lot of military people here. There's strategy involved in any military tactic. Or you're going to lose. <laughs> Satan is the ultimate strategist. He's working in those listening and he's working on those preaching. He's going to work in the listeners to give every reason not to believe what's being said. He's going to do it with threats of violence, persecution. He's going to do it with persuasive uh, arguments for the love of money, the cares of this life, the comforts of this world, better than what, what the gospel brings. And he might be right. The gospel promises no glorious life. Paul said to the Corinthian church, even now we're considered as the scum of the earth. We're hungry. We're in distress. We're shipwrecked. We're homeless. Paul, has seen, Paul said, I think that God's seen fit to display us apostles as the least of everyone. That's the gospel reality in this world. Because this is not the kingdom God's promised us. We're vagabonds here. We're heirs in His kingdom, however. So there's two strategies. And you see both these strategies, both in Iconium and in Lystra. Right? You see this. He's working in the listeners and he's working on the messengers to persecute. I'll say this for you, church. Be ready to have your name ruined as a Christian. If you love your reputation, be ready to lose your reputation. Because our social standing in the world's eyes is nothing great. They don't look at you and say, wow, those people are awesome. No, they look at you and say, you people are ugly. Intolerant bigots. Right? That's common today. Be ready to have your name and your reputation questioned. Your social status changed. Your exaltation in the world taken away. You will be despised. You will be rejected by those who embrace the spirit of this world. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, Everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They will be persecuted. Satan will be sure to bring you every attack. When you make your allegiance to Jesus known. This is why Jesus said count the cost. If you want to try and have good standing in the world. And be a Christian. You have your foot in both. And someone can't serve two masters. He said. You can't serve two masters. You'll love the one and hate the other. Or you'll hate the one and love the other. Don't be surprised church. And don't shy away from it. Our inheritance is better than this. And that's promised. It's sealed, in fact, by His resurrection. Being willing to suffer for your faith in Jesus is one of the clearest tests and signs of a true disciple. Paul and Barnabas encouraged the disciples at Lystra on their return journey that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. That's in verse 22. We'll get to it in a minute. Passage into the kingdom of God, I wrote, is preceded by passive, passage out of the world through persecution. In fact, this kind of religion 
Christian religion is wholly unappealing to those who love the world or their life. It's wholly unappealing. There's nothing appealing about the gospel or Christianity to those who still love their life in this world. Who would voluntarily want to be rejected and despised by men? Who would want to risk persecution, risk the loss of everything, even family perhaps, unless you saw the absolute need for the salvation of your soul and that pearl of great price you were willing to let all things go? That's it. True ministry, learning from Paul and Barnabas in these two encounters. These are awesome points. Man, there's so much I wanted to say. First, why stay at Iconium and why go back to Lystra? Let's finish reading verse 19 through 23. So Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. And entered the city. I love that. <laughs> they drag him out of the city thinking he's dead. He gets back and walks right back in. He rose up and entered the city. And on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. And when they had preached the gospel to that city. And had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra. And to Iconium. And to Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So why stay at Iconium? Why go back to Lystra? And then why visit all three towns again? Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 8-10, this is a dying letter, remember, this is the last letter he ever wrote. He said, I'm in chains right now, but the word of God's not chained. He says, in fact, I endure all that I'm enduring, all things, for the sake of the elect, so that they may too obtain eternal life. Why stay there? Because he's doing it for you. I hope you catch that. This is the mark of a true man of God or woman of God. They serve not for themselves, but for you. He was stoned to the point they thought he was dead. He gets back up and walks back into town. My work's not finished here. Some people would call that reckless, would they not? Get out of here, Paul. No. That's why we sang the song, Reckless Love. My work's not done. I just got here. You people just believe. I've got work to do in establishing you in the faith. I love that. It's for the perseverance of the saints. For protection against wolves. This is the master shepherd, the responsible shepherd, Paul, at his finest right here. I love this passage. This is my favorite portion of this passage. His actions at the end... Remind me of the song we just sung. It shows the true character of Paul. It shows his true motivation. He loved the people above his own well-being. When the gospel was being threatened at Iconium by the Jews who were poisoning the minds and hearts of the listeners, what did he do? He stayed there and fought for it. When they stone him at Lystra, what did he do? He gets back up and goes in the city. Just as Satan will always oppose you, God will also work. To overcome. 
Secondly, true ministry was preaching by word and by example. It's one thing to tell people it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. It's another thing to, while you're saying that, be taking stones off your head, get back up and go <laughs> preach again. Paul was never willing to preach what he would not practice. In fact, when he gave his resume as an apostle in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, well, let's just turn there. Go to 2 Corinthians 11 with me real quick. It's not an impressive resume to the world. Quite impressive to those who are spiritually minded people. 2 Corinthians 11, 21-30, the Corinthian church constantly was hounded by false apostles, super apostles they called themselves actually, and questioned Paul's true authority as an apostle. He says, here's my authority and here's my resume. You want to know what it is? It says in verse 21, to my shame, this is 2 Corinthians 11, 21, to my shame I must say we are too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labor, labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. We just read that account. It's the only time he was ever stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from that, from other things, there is the daily pressure on me, with my anxiety, for the church. That's why Paul got up and went back into Lystra. I'm worried for you, not for me. You see the beauty of that passage right there? That's reckless love. I don't care what happens to me. I want you established. I want you established. He preached by word and example. The third point there, true ministry, boldness and faithfulness. We see it displayed over and over in the scripture by Paul, by Peter, by the Lord, by so many men. But boldness and faithfulness characterizes people who are truly serving the Lord. People who are serving themselves are not going to be bold in the face of opposition because there's a risk. They're not going to be faithful to the message because being faithful to the gospel is always to incur the wrath of the world. And if you're serving yourself, if you're trying to make yourself something great in the eyes of people, you'll not be bold and you'll not be faithful to preach the truth. It's the hardest thing in the world to look at people you love, tell them the truth, and know they're going to walk away. But a faithful servant does it. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. Jesus did it. If you remember the account of the rich young man, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember at the end of the account, the man unwilling to part from his riches, he loved his money more than he loved God. What did Jesus do? He let him walk. No greater love though. He told him the truth. Boldness and faithfulness. There's always a logical argument that someone can make to avoid doing what Paul did in this account. 
There's always a logical argument. When you read this, you think, why did he go back? You can make logical arguments to, to say why Paul went, should not have gone back into Lystra. And on his return trip, you can make some kind of logical argument to say, why did Paul go back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch? They hated him. They tried to kill him there. And you can justify your reasoning through logic, but not through the love of Christ. When you operate in the love of Christ, there's every reason to go back to those cities. Because those people needed to be built up. They saw their man, their father in the faith, stoned, beaten, rejected. And it would be a temptation for them to not persevere in that faith, right? And Paul knew that. So he goes back and affirms. The scripture tells us in... in um, Acts 14, he strengthened the souls of the disciples and he encouraged them to continue in the faith. What a man Paul was. What a shepherd he was. I think it is in this passage we see most clearly Paul and Barnabas resembling our Lord. I think this is such a good picture. This is we sang in that song, the love of Christ, we see it embodied here in Paul and Barnabas. What if we loved each other that way? What if that kind of love was displayed and exhibited amongst ourselves? But then as a cherry on top, after being stoned so severely that Paul was dragged out in the city, thought dead, he gets up, he walks back into Lystra, and the text says the next day, the very next day, he gets up and walks to Derby with Barnabas. Derby was a 40-mile walk. <laughs> and what's he do when he gets to Derby? He does it all over again. Preaches the gospel. And he makes many disciples. Boldness and faithfulness. I love it. There's another last point though. Adaptive strategy. And I don't know if you caught this. It's the first time we see Paul. As he's ventured out farther and farther away from Jerusalem. And the influence of the Hebrew religion. He gets to Lystra where there's hardly any influence. It's the first time we see Paul appealing to general revelation. He meets the people where they're at. Okay, they, they heard the gospel, they didn't get it. They saw the miracle, they didn't get it. So what's Paul appeal to? Nature. General revelation. Romans 1, 18 following says that God has revealed himself, his power and his attributes through the things he's created. I'm going to do a topical lesson on this when we get to Acts 17. This is one of my favorite things to talk about being uh, trained in apologetics. It's worldview. There are things just from nature, apart from Scripture, that you can correctly come to conclusion about God. This is why so many of the early church fathers wondered if Plato and Aristotle were Christians, because they rightly concluded some things about God. General revelation is not sufficient to make you a Christian. Only the gospel is. But it is sufficient to give you knowledge of who God is. It's not sufficient to save you. Paul and Barnabas adapted their strategy to meet those people where they were. Look, if you won't listen to the gospel, look at creation. God satisfied you with rains, with food, with good things. Not these vain idols that you're worshiping. I'll leave it at that because I don't want to uh, blow my lesson for Acts 17. I've been so excited to get to Acts 17 since I started. You can't tell. So my last question, why the urgency of leaders? We're told here that... Uh, the end of the text, verse 23, that when they appointed elders from for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. They did this on their return trip. 
They visited Lystra, Iconium, and to Antioch. They strengthened and they encouraged, and then they appointed the elders. It's probably my favorite aspect of this passage. It's very intentional that Luke mentions those three cities because it was in those three cities that Paul was driven out of in persecution. And I want you to follow me on this. Those three cities have in common the fact that Paul and Barnabas faced persecution in each. Hence, they wanted to strengthen and encourage the disciples in those places to continue in the faith. Their walk with the Lord will be accompanied with persecution, they would tell them. But Paul persevered and is both teaching them and encouraging them to persevere. Then he says they appointed elders. It would be easy for us to simply take that statement as a fact. Okay, they appointed elders and move on. Without asking why. Why did they appoint elders? Here's what I believe the answer is to why. What happened to Paul and Barnabas on their journey through these cities the first time? It was the Jews who followed Paul and Barnabas, driving them out, right? If you go to the book of Galatians, real quick, we'll end with this. Remember, the book of Galatians includes all these cities we've covered today. Paul would actually visit these churches on every one of his missionary journeys, all three. He visited these churches. In fact, Lystra is where Timothy was from. Son in the faith. Pretty cool. We'll check that out in chapter 16. In Galatians, Paul opens up the letter in verse 6. I am astonished. Chapter 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Why did Paul appoint elders? Because he knew that when he left, these men were coming. And he didn't want to leave his new flock without He would say the same thing at Ephesus when he left Ephesus in Acts 20. Be on guard, he told the elders, for the flock that God has made you overseers of. Because I know when I leave, wolves will try and devour them. And men will rise up from amongst yourself, not sparing them. Paul learned from this example. The Jews followed him and chased him wherever he went. So he returns to those towns. Why? Because they were in danger. And as a good shepherd, he says, I'm going to help you. We need leaders. I can't stay here forever. But I'm not going to leave you without. How beautiful is that? I love that passage. These churches that he first evangelizes, we just read in 14, would struggle. They would give ear to these Judaizers. And they'd falter. That's why he wrote the letter of Galatians. It's one of the greatest works on law and grace that you'll ever study. But the bigger picture that we're looking at is the reality that anywhere you go, you will have opposition. There is always competing voices for the truth. And church, we've got to understand that. Let that inform how we do ministry and let it inform how we pray for each other. 
Let's push past the shallowness of our prayers and pray, Lord, remove the veil. Let the seed penetrate hearts. Let it bear fruit. Let them be established in the word. That's spiritual praying right there. Praying for one another. Praying for those people we meet. That's spiritual strategy. Understanding the strategies of Satan. He's at work in the listeners and he'll be at work on you. But persevere.